welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 272. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are, Bill. It's a, what is it, a Tuesday? It is a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, bad air quality out there. So it's like sluggish, sluggish days here in suburban Philadelphia. Sluggish days, indeed. Yeah, yeah. And um, first of all, we should congratulate a friend and colleague. Heidi Hankel and her husband, Court, had a little girl, baby girl. Congratulations, Heidi. Zoe and Court. So she looks lovely and so wish blessings and good wishes to all of you together. So we have a Democratic debate tonight? Yeah. And tomorrow night is, I also think, the finale of The Bachelorette running up against the Democratic debate. So. Yeah, I'm going to miss both those things, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I didn't... I don't, yeah, I just don't... You're, I don't. Not, you're not part of Bachelor Nation. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I am not part of that, no. There's that. It's it's actually a, a, a fairly big... Uh, it's a popular show. No, apparently, apparently it is. Uh, people talk about it a good bit. The Bachelor. Yep. Now, I, I guess there was... Uh, where was I? Where people were talking about the whole um, sexual thing? Oh, I was at a birthday party of a colleague's on Saturday, and the neighbor came up and whispered about the what the one. I guess the one, uh, which actually is on, on topic for today, uh, the one bachelor candidate. He was saving himself for his wife, right? So he, I don't know if he had been sexually active. That was the former football player. I think so. So he was living a life of purity, and he, I guess the big reveal was uh, that she kind of rejected him for that. So I always think of the mummers when I think, big reveal, big reveal. It's, it's, <laughs> just, it's the fancy brigade has a big reveal. And then, you know, something like the truck opens up and clowns come out or whatever. I, lo- I love the mummers. Yeah, the mummers, for those of you who are uninitiated, is a uniquely Philadelphia. It's awesome. <laughs> My wife, I've never met someone, I don't think, that's not like a, a go-down-there kind of person, just a casual mummers person that's more of a devotee. Like from the TV like my wife loves to watch the mowers. Well, it's it's just a, it's uh, the one day in Philadelphia you can have open alcohol yeah, as well. You can so do a I lot. think that's a lot of the popularity. And actually, I think probably you know wasted is the way to watch the mowers parade. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's probably more interesting. <laughs> yeah, far more interesting. So, do you want to say anything before we get really into our today's topic about like I mean, there's the tweet. Storm, which I mean, last night on Fox was like a five alarm fire. I mean, they had they had Eric Trump on Hannity, then they brought Limbaugh in, then they had an African American correspondent interviewing African Americans in Baltimore. I mean, it was a it was a fascinating uh, thing that happened. I thought I thought I mean, it was I was pretty amazed. Yeah, no, I don't want to talk about. It. I think it's just uh, yeah, we've said about everything we need to say. I think I think we're on the record about how we feel about those things. Do you think? Like if John, if Kasich was the nominee, right, in 2016, would they have said Kasich was racist because of his policies and stuff? 
Because they said Romney wanted to put African Americans in chains and was racist, and George W. Bush was racist. So I, I mean, I think like is it is it that now at some point, if every Republican is racist, and this gets back to one time we talked about in one episode about how liberals tend to look at racism as outcome and and conservatives look at at it more in intention so if you have if your policies have systemic effects that you don't intend liberals will tend to see that fairly as racist where a conservative might not but it's just interesting because it, it it seems that racism the charge has lost some of its sting you know, it, it, it used to be more stigmatizing. Well, right. I think that's, you know, maybe, again, by calling everything racism, you know, then nothing becomes racism. I think that's part of the problem. I mean, you know, George W. Bush and Mitt Romney are, were both white men of extreme privilege. And so they're... Mitt Romney was white? I'm colorblind. <laughs> I don't see color. I mean, I'm colorblind. So, so, so the, you got news. That's news to me. All right. So the so fact Romney is, white. you know, that there certainly anybody in the majority culture is going to be guilty of some form of racism one way or the other. However, uh, just to throw that at them because of the, you didn't like their policies, uh, even if there's a, you know, even if the end result of a policy disproportionately affects the poor, which then inevitably affects the minority. I don't think that makes that inherently racist. It may be a bad policy. It may be, um, if you know, there's could be other things, but to meanly call that racist, I think you're right. If we could be a little more, uh, more specific, okay, because if you disproportionately hurt the poor, racial minorities are going to have um, disproportionate effect of that. I think that would be, that's more precise. But now when you have things that are by intent uh, you being used to for political purposes to rile up a certain base, and you're purposely, you know, touching into racist tropes. Then I think it's hard not to call that anything else but racism. So yeah, I mean, my wife didn't know who Representative Elijah Cummings was, like by name, ID, or you know, to imagine him, and she said, "Look." She saw the tweet. I don't know who the uh, who that is, but I'm guessing he's black from the tweet. <laughs> so, so the the dog whistle, <laughs> the message was was received by someone who didn't know the specific congressman. Lindy could guess uh, the color based on some of the things that inflammatory things in the tweet. Yeah, and you know, for those of you who don't know, Representative Elijah Cummings. I mean, he he even defended. Uh, what's his name? The represent the Republican representative from North Carolina, Meadows. Mark yeah, Meadows. he 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 defended Mark Meadows when Mark Meadows was attacked um, by uh, Democrats, and uh, Representative Meadows was remarkably silent when his good friend Elijah Cummings was attacked by the press. Leia Paulos, my good friend, and and publicity shop, press she runs press shop with her husband Andy. They were the publicists for. Uh, Oh, not Elijah Cummings for John Lewis. John Lewis had the graphic novel, right? Representative Lewis. Sorry, not Elijah Cummings. I was I'm, I'm confusing Elijah Cummings. There you go. So that well, anyway, John Lewis, who was a big get, they got him on Colbert, which is impressive. Uh, yeah. Well, so, John, well, John Lewis is a national hero. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the few. You know, for that he wasn't captured. I like heroes that weren't <laughs> captured. So he's a hero. He wasn't captured. No, he was he was beaten by the. By the uh, beaten's fine as long as you're not captured by the Alabama Highway Patrol. You know, at any rate, so 
the beat goes on. The, and the beat indeed does go on. Oh, I I heard this today too. That so white liberals, right? The left side of the Democratic Party, like the sort of most the, you know the white liberal sort of base, are the only group in America that prefers the out group, the outsider group, to themselves. That was what it means to be woke. They're the only group in America, like polling wise, that likes you know, others like ethnic minorities, things like that more than their own group. So they, you know, they, they're the only group that likes the out group more than the in group. I, 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 there's data. It's it's interesting. That's what it means. So that's the definition of woke now. I guess, I guess I'm a little sleepy around the edges. (laughs) It's it's, it's fascinating. Well, well, you, you could go. Yeah. There's a psychological explanation for that, but that's, could be a different episode. I think we probably have talked about that somewhere in the past 271 episodes. Uh, self-loathing as a way of making yourself feel better. But uh, we want to talk today about losing our religion, not ours in particular, but... Uh, that's me in the corner. Do you ever listen to that song? It sounds like you're at, like, you ever have, like, a friend that they go on a vacation and make you look at all their photos and you're like, God, when will this end? Like, that's what that song sounds like. That's me in the corner. Next shot. That's me in the spot. Light over there. I'm losing my religion. And you're like, when's it going to end? And when can we eat dinner? How how did you you just, you just made, um, uh, them sound like Michael Stipe sound like Jerry Lewis. <laughs> if Jerry Lewis was singing REM, that's what it would be. I love it. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll never be able to listen to that song. All for again the kids, all for the television. Without saying, yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jerry Lewis, the humor totally lost on me. Maybe that's a sign that I'm not French. But anyway, and there is an old joke. That only part of our listeners will get. It was funny. On, on, uh, I listened to Dan Levitar today, and, and that one uh, old old uh, journalist from the Miami Herald made a joke, and Dan Levitar started laughing because that would have been hilarious thirty years ago. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, jokes have to be. You know, it's rather yeah a joke be too soon than too late. Yeah. Have you ever tried to have you have you preached with a uh, with a translator before? Have you ever done that? Like, have, I think I did it two or three times. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> One time I, I did it to, for this Chinese congregation. And like, I thought, man, that tra- they were so grateful. And I thought that translator must have been like the Reverend Billy Graham. <laughs> I didn't really think I said anything. But, I was like, that translator must have done a lot of cleaning up. I, I, did a, I was preaching one time in a, in a little church in... Uh, Oh, it was got a lot of people there in Guatemala in a, in a Mayan village, and uh, I tried a joke, and um, you know, I think the translator saved me. <laughs> because, yeah, you usually don't do that when you're in translation. No, it's a, it was a What's risky the term. Lost in translation, it was a risky thing to do, but they were loving, loving people. I All love right. it. All right, so we're responding, or I don't respond, but we're just we're adding our two cents, which may actually only be. I don't know. Lost in if you if you did a currency exchange, I'm not sure what our two cents would be worth. <laughs> Larry King does a thing. Uh, my two cents, like it's on this audio, like social media thing, where we could do that. We could just record little things and blast on this audio social media site. And he's like, "This is my two cents." Every time I see the Dalai Lama, I want to say, hello, Dolly. 
That's my two cents. Like he'll just like he's yeah. like, why is it so funny when someone slips on a banana peel? That's my two cents, and he just goes goes on and on like for like ten minutes. It's pretty hilarious. He, the man, he's a man who, who we just can't get rid of him. He just no, keeps coming no. back and does not get any more profound. No, he that. does not. He does not. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon. Of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider. Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedi, and Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So, um... There's been a lot of press around, first of all, Josh Harris, uh, for you who do not remember. You know who is a friend of Josh Harris? No. Knows him personally. Who? Jace Broadhurst. All right. At any rate, Jace. Uh, friend Jace, of the show. Friend is, of the show. Is he still a friend of the show? Absolutely. Good. Jace, I hope things are going well for you out. And he's in Indiana, right? He is in Indiana. So, at any rate... Um, he wrote a book years ago. I guess he was only was he in his twenties, early twenties when he wrote yeah, the book. I kiss dating goodbye. Yeah, that in alone a catchy title. But he was part. And, and there's a picture of it, like at the in the back or the inside cover of he and his wife married, and she's real attractive. It's like see what happens if you wait. Like you'll get this nice, gorgeous, proportionate person. You know, if you don't date, it was kind of the evangelical equivalent to. If you do this, you'll get 70 virgins in heaven. Yes. <laughs> kind of like yes. That. But it was part of the whole purity culture, I guess, is what people are calling it now, where the idea of um, dating and usually the sexual tensions that go along with that is a, is a bad way to get to know someone. And also, I think some of the idea was that you, you get involved with somebody, you get intimate, get close, break up, do that a bunch of times and it creates the mindset for divorce. It creates the serial monogamy dis discard, I guess like creates the expectation for things not working out, moving on when it doesn't or something. Yeah. Like that. And so and, and the, the, the answer I suppose was more a courtship model where you basically didn't go on traditional dates, but you had people, you know, families knew each other and you spent time together and as families and groups. And then you decided that you 
were for each other and became betrothed or something. I don't know. So I, I mean, I, I, I don't know much about it firsthand, <laughs> but these are these right. are things I'm sharing from. My, and by the way, Dave French wrote a piece in the National Review where he took over for the youth pastor at his church when he was a young lawyer. He had the youth pastor left so for the summer or something. He was the volunteer youth pastor, and he reinstated dating at this evangelical church. They had said the youth group shouldn't date. And he thought it was legalistic and too much of a burden on anybody. He wrote a great piece about how uh, the sin of putting too much on people, like of, of sort of asking what the gospel doesn't sort of thing. And so he wrote this piece about how he his first uh, move was reinstating dating. So he said, kids, give dating a chance. My trouble with dating in youth groups was always when I had all my youth groups where you would build them and you'd build community and everybody got close. And then they started dating, and then when they broke up, it created all kinds of problems. So my my opposition to dating them in the youth group was purely numbers. I mean, yeah, it was purely well, purely utilitarian because I ended up spending way too much time having to navigate and negotiate and and work with folks. But nonetheless, um, Josh announced, I guess, a couple weeks ago that he and his wife um, were. Um, but the, the I guess it was an amicable divorce, which is no such thing. As Gwyneth Paltrow would say, we're consciously decoupling. Decoupling. And that, then, that's what she said with the guy. Who's the guy from Coldplay? That when they, uh, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. They, the uh, lead singer, yeah. They yeah. were consciously, consciously decoupling. decoupling. I think that was, and, and he didn't want it, but on, <laughs> he had a very different version of why that was happening. <laughs> he was unconsciously coupling, I guess. He didn't want it to happen. But, it, you know... It helped produce one of their better albums, his his, his uh, sadness. But um, so then a few just recently, he announced that he's no longer a Christian. And you should say, too, that he was part of the Sovereign Grace movement, where I guess C.J. Mahaney or somebody, so, which was a very sort of conservative, independent, reformed, hierarchical, hierarchical, had some problems with sort of sexual and child abuse kind of allegations that were mishandled. Well, and, the, well the chief problem was that C.J. Mahaney was in charge of it. Yeah, I mean, he so there were... He, no, so, he, he I think, should, yeah. in light of this, a lot of the stuff, like... Can I just say that C.J. Mahaney, I actually heard him speak when he first started out, and he was popular and kooky back then. Uh, back in the 80s, he did all, all the creation and the Jesus festivals, and he, at even at that time, it was this kind of retro, hierarchical... Uh, and again, I don't like to use the word puritanical because it gives the Puritans a bad name. The Puritans were much, in many ways, much more healthy. Anarchic. Yeah, much more healthy in their uh, sexuality than, than modern evangelicals. You know, part, part of the problem is, um, I, I, again, you know, first of all, I guess there's a couple of things. We could talk about the purity culture. Uh, we could also talk about the kind of uh, glee... But can we just say contextually, like I want to sort of say before we get into that he actually had never gone to seminary. It was part of a pastor of a large church and then went to Regent in Vancouver, which right. is a, a, a sort of progressive evangelical. It's a, it's a good, they have good people there. Yeah, yeah good it's a very, you, yeah. You, you would get exposed to a, a wide array of ideas and thoughts while still being, you know, in a generous kind of evangelical yeah, social good. context. So. He kind of goes to, and starts thinking and, and eventually repudiated some of his earlier thoughts right. on dating and things like that. And then that followed a sort of leaving the ministry, getting divorced, leaving the faith. Yeah. It's a country music song waiting to happen. Yeah. 
Well, uh, I think it's been written a couple of times. So it's, there's, a, there's a bluegrass song. She used to sing in the church choir, but now she's sitting down at the bar. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, it's a good bluegrass song. Um, so part of it, I think, I don't know, I have different, you know, my different reactions. First of all, um, the temptation to enjoy other people's downfalls is, is so much a part of human nature. It's certainly a part of religious communities. It, I think for most people, it goes beyond temptation. <laughs> it's such a sound out enjoyment. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I mean, I, I just, there's, we, sometimes if you, if you just would just not press the send button or the post button, you know, if you want to, if, you, if it feels good to write it out, but then just don't post it because, you know, first of all, I mean, um, does it really help your position or my position if someone who you disagree with suddenly abandons the faith? Is that a, is that a depends good thing? if your candidates for the same job? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can think of a few. I'm not saying it should, but it could. I'm ruling it out. All right, let's say beyond your own personal gain. <laughs> let's take that. Let's take that section out of it. But uh, yeah, it is a natural thing for us to enjoy um, the repudiation or the downfall of other people. So. That, that's Sorry, we can start caller. 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 How do we deal with our callers? We just hang up we on just them. Hang up. Yeah, not today. It's only calls on Thursdays. That's right. That's right. So, um, so I think that's one of my first reactions. And, and even trying to make, I mean, even trying to make broad generalities or the, to make some sort of lesson out of someone else's faith crisis. Let me give you, I could give you some examples of those. Uh, do you want to? Should we? Yeah, speak, keep talking because I got to find it. <laughs> so going back, by the way, to it's a, it's a friend of the show whose book you reviewed oh, recently. Uh, right. He said he did say something. He said it's funny because he said I don't want to do say this, but well, then I'm don't say then don't say it if you don't uh, want to say it. Just don't say it. What did he say? Uh, he said he said that he doesn't want to jump on the in this. On, on Josh Harris, but then he says, after reading, this was Sunday, after reading yet another reaction of Joshua Harris's recent walk away from the faith, has it ever been more obvious that the evangelical epistemological edifice complete with an errant Bible, celebrity megachurch, and individual soteriology can no longer sustain a Christian life in the post-Christendom West? Hashtag, there I said it. Hashtag, Fitch's two cents. <laughs> There, I said it. You know who else does that? Mark Levin. He always says, there, I said it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think uh, David, you want to be following the paths of Levin. That's not the, maybe your role model. Or hopefully not. That's your role model. But, you know, it, first of all, it has nothing to do with Christendom. that <laughs> A person loses their faith. Matter of fact, uh, some of the darker works of uh, Augustine, two of his last works uh, on providence and on perseverance of Saints, I think those are his last two things on predestination. I may have that, I may have his English translations wrong, but part of them was inspired because this old priest ran off with one of the catechumens, <laughs> and so he causes you know how how come he hung in there so long and then just took off? So, um, so the, strike while the iron is hot. <laughs> I think I think that iron had already gone cold. I don't know. Maybe yeah. not. Must not. But anyway, so the idea of people falling away. Or maybe is, the iron that was the catechumen was. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, 
I don't know. Boy, this is you know Augustine, the under the underbelly, uh, the, the untold story. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So I think you know. First of all, um, you know, I, I, over the years as a pastoral in my pastoral ministry, I have had lots of people who've come in to who have lost their faith or going through faith crisis, and most of the time, what they're losing is faith in something less than the living God or the gospel. In other words, it was something that they thought was true. Um, it could be, you know, it could be every, anything from an inerrant Bible or uh, God, you know, was going to take care of me and something horrible happens um, to more sophisticated or less sophisticated things. But often when someone loses a false faith or, a, or an immature faith, doubt is part of the stage to a, a deeper understanding or the potential for a deeper understanding. Now, I do. I've, I've seen people just walk away because what they had put their faith in failed them. Sometimes it's people. Uh, you know, I certainly have had, you know, as much as I've always told people, don't put faith in me. You know, I, I mean, I've had my mistakes hurt people. I mean, that's one of the things I live with and pray about. Um, but if you have your faith in the wrong ideas, and those ideas, in in some levels, if you're fortunate enough to find out that these ideas are wrong, then it does give you an opportunity to develop a more deeper, more sophisticated, more adult faith. But then also, you know, there's a possibility of it, of it being so hard to lose that, that you end up with no faith. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. My friend, Chris, who had this Atlas project podcast with asked me a couple weeks ago, he wanted to talk about conversion and social change and how sometimes maybe we have to go undergo something like a conversion before we, and he's like, well, you probably deal with the idea of conversion more than I do. And so I said, well, I think in any conversion, whether it's religious or irreligious or, or non-religious, if it's just a huge worldview shift or, or ideological shift, I think like three things happen. One is usually, and they're not necessarily in this order, but I mean, I usually think there's, there's an intellectual component, right? Where it, you, where a new idea or a new way of seeing things takes lot is, is, it could take root. It's possible that it could take root. And actually you're ready to move around the intellectual furniture so that it could take root that, you know, your plausibility structure has got to be blown up or rearranged or modified. Then there's an existential component, right? The idea like, you know, when the, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, like sometimes it's something in life. Like it's not just that you're willing to shift the way you see and believe and see that, but like something in your life primes the pump for, a radical sea change. And the third thing is sort of sociology of knowledge stuff. Like you become like who you like and who in your tribe. And so oftentimes certain kind of ways of being or seeing the world are more attractive because the, the people group that adheres to them become attractive to you or, or you can, that's why people say, well, you know, if you weren't, if you were born in, you know, Tibet, you probably wouldn't be a Christian. And I'm always, you know, I was sometimes, say, well, yeah, if you were born in Mad Madagascar, you probably wouldn't be an atheist. I mean, like these things, you know, but not, it's not determinative, but like it, it's a factor. So I think if that's how uh, one comes to things, often too, one can convert away from faith with those things too, where something, it doesn't fit how you're seeing the world anymore intellectually or it, it, existentially something happens that it no longer makes sense of life where you are existentially, emotionally, experientially. And also sometimes you don't like the tribe anymore. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and no. you find people that you're, you, that, that you find an easier 
time journeying with and, and they see the world differently. So I think, I think those things are factors. And the other thing I think what you were saying too, like if an idea, I mean, you know, I think a lot of, at least this is a problem. I think the, the way I can think of it most, that most applies is usually among a certain kind of conservative evangelical or fundamentalist, but where it's the, the, the belief system is like a Jenga game, right? When you play Jenga, you put all these wood pegs and, then when you make, when you stack the tower, you start pulling them out, and the person that loses is the person that pulls out the one that topples the tower, and any single peg can topple the tower. And so you have, you know, I think a lot of belief structures are built like that. Well, well, did Jonah happen literally? Six day creation, authority of the Bible, resurrection of Christ. They're all the does God exist? They're all the same, and if any of them are pulled out, it could topple the whole thing as opposed to something like a layer cake or something where the big foundation starts and you can build on that and and something higher up on the layer can be pulled out and the whole cake doesn't have to be scrapped so i think that that oftentimes that kind of thing too you know the 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 intellectual experiential sociological factors combined with the jenga factor can sometimes you know describe what happens in like a deconversion. Right. And, you know, the, the same thing true is finding faith. In other words, where there is, uh, you know, I remember being at Princeton and a guy that, um, you know, we, we were watching kids together on, on, the, on, the, on the playground and he had come there kind of, he was mostly an agnostic or an atheist, I think I don't remember what he considered himself. And, and we were talking, great guy, and he kind of ended up at seminary, kind of was thinking, you know, kind of landed there and was getting ready to go do a PhD somewhere. It was funny, like we had lost track, and the next spring, I guess you know, you go in, <laughs> you go in for the winter or whatever, and we're out there again. And he goes, "Hey," because we had been talking about it, we had a good conversation. He said, "Hey, I just want you to know, I believe again." I go, wow. I go, and I, you know, usually finding faith is not something that happened at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I said, "Well, what was it?" He goes, "Reading Paul Tillich." And I, I, I didn't. I was just amazed. But you know, there's something. There was something, and you know, I can't even remember now what it was in Tillich that brought him around. But you know, I think. Please the, tell me it was the courage to be. That make me feel better about life. <laughs> but I do think there's a sense. You know, in the Bible, two stories where two very devout Jews have very different responses to Jesus. Uh, and because the encounter with Jesus made them, they had to change their mind and, and themselves as well. The one is the rich young ruler who comes, seems like an honest seeker, uh, and wants to follow, or at least wants to find out what he needs to inherit eternal life. In essence, Jesus' answer turns him away. Now, he may have come to Jesus thinking he was okay, and he walks away conv convicted. So that that would be a good thing. You know, we, he didn't follow Jesus then, but... He left disturbed. His his faith, whatever his system was, which we don't know, um, was shaken by his encounter with Jesus. The same thing as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Saul's encounter with the resurrected Christ is like one of those, oh, you know what moments where he's, you know, the, the, you were thinking you were doing God's work. You were also ultimately persecuting Christ. Now, Saul of Tarsus had a couple different options there. The option he chose was, you know, to listen to the voice and he was baptized. But, you know, sometimes when these very public people, and the reality of it is, um, if you're a public figure, uh, there's not a lot, you're having to, if you're a pastor and going through doubts, 
then probably you're lying some somewhat on Sunday morning, and and it's a well-intentioned lie because you, you know, if you if you have a conscience, it's not your job to share your doubts and wreck the faith of your people. But I think for people maybe like Josh, I don't know him at all. That maybe was part of what broke him. I mean, the incongruencies of his own life. I mean, if you believe, if part of your credo is that God will, if I'm obedient and do the right things, I'll end up with the right woman. And when that marriage is falling apart for whatever reason, uh, that kind of shatters the whole framework, coupled with he's having doubts and he's having to preach to people who believe he is an oracle of the divine. You know, when somebody finds that he's on Tinder, that will be screenshotted and put all over Instagram and social media. Regardless of uh, what... his, his memoir, I gave Tinder a try, <laughs> <laughs> or, or Grinder. Go either way. Yeah, go either way. Go either way. Anyway, I, so I think there's a sense where um, faith is faith is hard. I mean, I think I think that's something we often forget. It's always been one of the great weaknesses of the evangelical community because. When what they do is they make the Christian life hard, so they think that's will work out the hardness of the faith. So that's why you get a lot of legalism. I remember the last time I was ever invited to be part of a panel with Ron Sider, he had uh, his book was a takeoff on the scandal of the evangelical. Oh yeah, the scandal of the evangelical conscience. I conscience, yeah. So I was part of this, you know, part of part of the respondent group, and uh, you know, part of this says, you know, eighty, you know. Uh, of the hundred, you know, of the people polled of the Southern Baptists who made the purity pledge, eighty percent of them within two years had had sex. So it came to my my turn to talk, and I go, twenty percent ain't bad. Yeah, no, not, not, not at all. <laughs> you know, and anyway, because uh, I think the you know Cyrus still taps into that holiness movement, the kind of the morality part of things, and and I don't, you know, goodness is a function of being loved by the good. It's part of the freedom. As a matter of fact, this week in the lectionary, Paul's very clear that one of the results of being in Christ, being baptized into Christ, is that we can be set free from all the old practices. Uh, I think that's one of the differences between the way the New Testament talks about sexual ethics and the post-Freudian uh, Catholic world as well, because... Sexual ethics. What about the post-Trump evangelical world? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they just threw that one out. I don't know. He's Cyrus. He can do anything. He, he can do wants. anything he wants to. And we'll give you our daughters, just as long as you make America great again. Um, but um, the idea that Christ had set them free from the passions of the flesh—that that the Christian ethic was one of freedom—and considering, particularly, you not only in terms of your own sexual self, but the way other people could use you, that you were more than that was a great message of hope. And I think it still is. I mean, the idea is we see all kind of, you know, the, the result of sexual anarchy, the, the destructiveness is all around everywhere. However, when you treat sex almost as an evil or you, you ha- try to, you know, take a Christian ethic Went from a time when most people, the delay between their ability to be sexually active and their marriage was not very, not very long, and then you bring it on a culture where people become, you know, sexually mature, you know, sexually capable. Now, eleven or you know, ten, eleven, 
and then say, you know, you wait and have sex after your grad school. <laughs> it's just not realistic. Hey, at least when somebody in The Bachelor did it. <laughs> the Bachelorette. <laughs> well, he so, gave it up. It's but he, took, he did it, but then he gave it, it up. It cost him something, too. Yeah. We, but, well, so, again, I, I mean, for Jesus. the sexual ethic thing is, is a con. What's it mean to have a sexual ethic in, in the age we live in? But for me, the larger issue is is right now with this person is another prominent person who loses faith. Um I mean, our chief response should be sadness, and we should pray for him, and not delight in his downfall. I think also, you know, this is something you and I said off camera. I don't know if we're ready to talk about this, but the spectrum, spectrum of, uh, you know, re-examining the idea of losing faith. Uh, this this will certainly, uh, well, maybe we'll say that for a different episode, but uh, it'll certainly excite our 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 strong Calvinist <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, this is a passage from Phil Carey's... Oh. Almost oh no! Head. Tragedy, tragedy. Is it break? Did it break? Oh, oh, well, that's why you always get the warranty, out right? No, oh, it did not break. This oh. is out of warranty. Thank goodness it did not break. Uh, yeah, strong glass. By the way, this is the book you want. You've just interviewed Phil. You want to great guy, great guy. You and want to highly recommend this book? Yes. Okay. It's called uh, the. The meaning of Protestant theology, and it, he he talks a lot about. I don't feel like I have to buy it because eventually you will text me. Yeah, the whole exactly. Book. <laughs> he talks about the danger of like reflective faith, which faith in our faith, right? If right. Faith, yeah, that's do, a great. Do point. I have faith yeah. in my faith? To have faith. And he has this great passage where he says he's he's referencing Luther's smaller catechism. He says the reason Christian faith is never something to make a decision about is that it is always something that I should believe I already have because I have received it from the Holy Spirit who has promised to all the baptized, and I have no right not to believe God's promise. If I am a child growing growing up in a good Lutheran household, baptized as an infant and learning my catechism, I will not be told to make a decision for Christ, but taught in the words of the catechism to believe that I cannot believe, as well as to believe that the words that follow, which are in the past perfect tense, signifying what has already been done, but the Holy Spirit has preserved me in the true faith. I have no decision to make. And I thought that is such an interesting take on uh, a faith that within it contains and deals with our ability not to believe. Uh, I think it's powerful. That's a powerful idea. You know, one of the things... Um, we were talking about doing this episode, and I did uh, premarital counseling uh, last evening uh, vis-a-vis Skype. And part of this couple's story was they were high school; they became high school sweethearts. You know, they tried different college, you know, staying together for college, together, back to off together. They eventually broke up after college. Um, but he and then they got back together three years later after each of them had seen different people, and. Uh, he said, I always knew that she was going to be my wife. And uh, <laughs> and she looks at me and says, I, well, I wasn't always sure, but now I know. <laughs> but the, the, the idea is that um, we should treat, I think, when people struggle with faith, lose faith, walk away from the faith, whatever we want to, um, the, they, there's, they're not, they haven't stopped being the beloved, you know, the, the the one who died for their souls doesn't love them any less, even though they may be lost or don't even, for whatever, wherever they are. So the prayer is that um, that they find the one who always wanted to be their lover. Yeah, amen to that. Right. Take care, Thanks, everybody. everybody. Happy Tuesday. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. 
Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.